0: You know, I telling you what I'm gonna do with this stick. What? I'm gonna give it to you. Oh, thank you, Mr. Robbins. Mr. Robbins? <laughs> taking the stick back, Elmo. <laughs> All Welcome to a special edition of Nick's Nonfiction. I'm your host here, comic Nick Muniz, paying homage today to a legend, David Itzkoff's book, Robin. If you haven't heard of the guy, you're living under a rock. A memorial episode, progressives love him. He is the creator of the first ever pro-transgender film, Mrs. Doubtfire got the hairiest knuckles in the game. They pulled him out of the womb and sent him to the ape sanctuary. Some say throughout the 80s, Robin Williams had trace amounts of blood in his cocaine stream. The book today is family friendly, as were most of Robin Williams, the Golden Dude's works. All the late night hosts list him as their favorite guest. You already know we're going to be touching on the edgier side of... This 80s comic in the Hawaiian shirt, you think he's all facade? He had some depth. The guy went through with the suicide, as all the jokers out here like to walk the line of. <laughs> this book talks about the death of Belushi. Robin Williams is held accountable by a lot of people. Belushi's out there doing speedballs. No more Pepsi, I gotta do some more Coke. And everybody, Robin Williams is a saint. Give 100 people a microphone, and 30% of them are impulsively going to scream, Good morning, Vietnam! Robin Williams has the record for the USO tours, going into Fallujah and entertaining forward operators. Felt guilty himself he wasn't losing legs on the front line. He envisioned... Robin is a man-child. He envisioned a war of comedians tossing rubber chickens into bunkers. Fire in your mama's hole. Instead of landmines, he imagined whoopee cushions out there on the battlefield. Might get sentimental towards the end. It's a birthday episode. We're celebrating three years into stand up here. A year, that doesn't even count, but Meadowlark, we got some action going back on in Denver, open mic wise. I mean, we'll definitely dive deep into that. It's not going to be some obsessive behind the curtain show today, but it's pretty funny. How the entire Denver scene is eating itself. There are separate mics for political views. (laughs) People like to say Robin Williams would have had a field day with the current landscape. He starts getting more political in his 2009 special Weapons of Self-Destruction. If you want to see some classic Robin Williams, look up 1983 an Evening with Robin Williams. That's when he first popped. He's quick there. Oh, he's using this Robin Williams cadence. He's got you in a loop. You think you're always a joke behind. Oh. He, <laughs> a lot of people say he didn't really write that much material, but he was ahead of the curve. Look at all the meme videos nowadays. People know that high pitch noises are funny for no good reason. Go watch that 1983. That's some raw stand-up. How about we do this about the author real quick before we dive in? It's a 10-chapter book. David Itzkoff is the author. He was born in 1976, born in New York, New York, Princeton, New Jersey. His alma mater has always been a freelance journalist, started with Spin Magazine, and then he wrote a memoir called Cocaine's Son about having a coke addict of a dad and uh, got his own writing slot in the New York Times, became a cultural reporter, just gets to talk about TV and entertainment for the New York Times. Pretty sick job. It Robin Williams found out how to be Peter Pan into adulthood. Remember the movie Hook? <laughs> Everybody's got some piece of media that their mom just threw on when they were in the crib to get them to shut up. I was watching Peter Pan on a loop. Probably why I want to dance around in tights on a stage and do a little gay skits for a living. Robin pulled it off. David Itzkoff, writing about potato head being racist, also pulled it off. <laughs> Itzkoff married in 2008. Another Jewish girl. His notable books are 2004 Lads, A Memoir of Manhood. It had a condom wallet on the cover. (laughs) Great way to destroy your birth control. 2014, his book Mad As Hell talks about TV's angriest characters. Maybe get some Jackie Gleason on that list. We're paying respect to all the comedians in August. Um, That's when we're reading a book called The Comedians, so that'll be a fun one. All you need to know about David Itzkoff. Chapter 1, The Escape Artist. Chapters 3 through 5-ish is when he's really at the peak of his career. Not many people have had this experience. Robin Williams, he grew up in a giant mansion built in the late 1800s, North of Detroit, Bloomfield Hills area. His dad worked for Ford, so they were moving back and forth, Chicago, Detroit, constantly. For some reason, Robin was always assigned the attic bedroom. Extensive interviews with Itzkoff for this book. Robin would say, the attic was where I was able to let my imagination run loose. I learned to take on personas of imaginary friends and make up their own voices. i have to touch on it at the top. Yes, he might have been schizotypal or whatever you want to classify it as. Man took his own life. I want my MLB players to be roided up. I want my comedians to be mentally ill. Let's get real here. I lived in an attic the first year I did. Go on our Patreon page. You could see a video of me. <laughs> Harry Potter under the stairs, losing my marbles. Robin says his craziness comes from his mother and his discipline comes from his dad. The two were polar opposites, so he was getting an incongruent paradoxes as a child. He was pointing out to the inconsistencies of parenting. He has that quote, very famous, everybody's born with a little bit of madness, it's up to you to hold on to it. Could be that touch of childhood nostalgia that he's able to bring to life. He said as a kid he had a little bit of body dysmorphia. His parents, though, were like, kid was vibrant. Robin's grandfather was from Illinois, American to the first generation, a bunch of miners, lumberers, admitted that he had a grandparent that was an alcoholic, and he said his father had a darker side that was activated by alcohol, so they kept it super clean in the household. Itzkoff, going back in time, 1951, the year he was born, ever since Robin got his first giggled playing peekaboo, he was addicted to eliciting that involuntary reaction from people. As Little Wayne said, I wish I could fuck every girl in the world. You're not going to be able to, but you can <laughs> make them rock back and forth with laughter involuntarily. I bet you in five years, laughter is going to be considered rape. His early heroes on TV were Danny Kaye and Jonathan Winters. thought these guys were masters. They didn't have a persona to hide behind no routine or shtick these guys were just quick and funny you see robin gets into improv base of knowledge later on he had an older brother todd he was 10 years older and he was a runaway so this kept robin squared he was a square saw the extremes of life he could go one way or another would steal beer from his parents he's not perfect Saw these half-brothers on holidays that he had, but they completely ignored his existence. 13 years of age, Robin got his first girlfriend. Said he was able to avoid his bullies by prancing around with her. I think they would just take his chick. His dad liked comedy so much that they would watch Johnny Winters together. And Robin would start recording the TV and rehearsing the sets. You hear like Chris Rock, all these people that are autistically tuned into comedy every joke they've ever heard they're able to file cabinet into their mind robin did this recording the tv and writing out line for line okay start with a one-liner go into an impression he is a scientist of comedic writing around 16 his dad got a job on the west coast so they had to relocate he's always moving around he's going all the progress i made my coping mechanisms came back twofold second half the first chapter he's getting a bit older He said he experienced culture shock on the West Coast. He's like, anything is permissible here. You don't have a sea of Midwestern Karens making sure your mask is above your nose, below your chin, (laughs) out on the West Coast. Bro, if the vibe feels right, just let that chin diaper hang. He has a great bit. There's only nine words people on the West Coast know. Totally radical. Wait, what? Maybe this is where he picked up the Hawaiian shirt. The guy wore one too many button downs. Maybe this was because he did mention his California schools had a dress code. And he was always on that suspenders grind. We all know on the show I think suspenders are sus. Red sus. He's an 80s comedian. You can't blame him. At least he wasn't wearing a flower that squirts water on his lapel. He starts blending in a little bit more as he gets older, gets the characteristics of the class clown. He's not doing the jokes where you rip the seat out from the teacher when they're about to sit down, put a tack on the seat. His jokes were always the teacher would give him a few minutes at the end of class to let off some steam because, you know, if you didn't, then he would interrupt otherwise. Time for college. He goes to Claremont Men's College. It's in East L.A. This isn't where he graduates from. He majored in foreign services just to satisfy his father. His dad was always going, you need to be a welder, son. That's a steady career. Talks about experimenting with marijuana in college. He loves talking about cartoons on stage, being high and watching slow motion Popeye. He gets to be Popeye later in his life, but this keeps him light. There's nothing funnier Then the sound of the bongos when the cat tries to run away and he's slipping beneath his feet. Cartoons can't be beat. Smoking in all the right circles at Claremont Men's College. He got kicked out because he uh, drove a golf cart through the dining hall. (laughs) I mean, these are probably tall tales at a certain point. You're never going to beat Max Keeble's big move. The food fight in that movie... Is non fiction. It is so transcendent. <laughs> uh, Robin had a girlfriend in college. He says I helped him develop. He was always a relationship guy, it seems like. And he joined his first improv group in college. It was called Karma Pie. Got respect from the other troopers because he was talented enough. He just kept the ball rolling even though he broke all of the rules. Instead of yes and, he said no but. <gasps> Kick him out of the improv arena. Opens up so many more doors if you don't have to say yes to everything. The power of no. Yes, man. Nah, son, it's 2020. You got to become a no man. Save them hours for yourself. (laughs) Robin's dad yanked him out of school because uh, the golf cart incident. Knew he wasn't taking it seriously. His dad was straight up. He's like, what will you take seriously? You have all of this kinetic energy potential He's like, just put it towards a singular focus. This wound up helping him, so he goes to Juilliard, wrapping up Chapter 1. That's the acting school in New York, top of the line, using that Ford money. Now that he's back on the East Coast, he's a sore thumb. He's wearing Hawaiian shirts and sandals around in the middle of the winter. He comes across one of his biggest acquaintances through his journey, Christopher Reeves at Juilliard. Reeves is recognized to be extremely talented as a dramatic actor. Guy is Superman. Malcolm Gladwell's outlier situation. You have to be born in the same period. I mean, Robin and Reeves ride each other's coattail throughout the years. They do the Dead Poets Society later together. Interesting part here. Robin Williams said uh, "Like his first mental break came when he wasn't able to go home one winter and he stayed at Juilliard. He lived on campus in a coat closet. You hear about Jim Carrey used to live in the friggin' janitor's closet of all the comedy clubs. <laughs> these people, you can't take no for an answer. That singular focus is what drives these guys to the next level. Kind of happy you don't have to see Robin Williams groveling on a podcast today. And with all of that improv background, at least he wouldn't be one of the guys that are sitting there going, Yeah, stand up. It's really an art form. Oh, when I write, this is what I... Well, how about you write a joke? We're all wasting each other's time. Robin, making all the right moves at a young age. Let's go to chapter two. Legalized insanity. And I'm sipping some coffee. Unfortunately, I'll have Robin Williams' snow plug. Maybe I could do prop comedy as good as him then. At the end of his hour sets, he would always take out a chest of props. Like carrot top. He's giving you extra time with the props, not burning through your hard earned dollars. What an entertainer. Legalized insanity. That's what he calls it. <laughs> He's back home in San Francisco after college. He says it's the greatest depression of his life, except not at the end. He's doing local theaters. He talks about, at this time, getting kicked out of the black clubs. Man, this Robin Clown, corny. One of the only comedians to ever do the Met Gala, a friggin' opera house. He said he had a really hard time learning how to ad-lib characters. And you could tell most of his career is <laughs> like built upon crowd work from that 83 to 86 special. A lot of recycled themes, and we'll get into how he wrote those specials later. In this after-college Bay area, he said he took his first acting class, and it was an immersive course. They basically threw him out onto the streets of San Francisco. We're like, this is where a bunch of hippies like to gather. While they're smoking weed, just go entertain them. So Robin, pulling his soapbox around town. He had one buddy who he would mime with in San Fran for money. He's like, it's hard to be a mime because you don't have any words, your voice. (laughs) So um, people just don't trust you. Mimes are incredibly off-putting and you have to have some sort of likability to get a laugh usually robin cold a crowd outside of a san Fran street they're on the side of a hill and this guy at the top of a brownstone tossed a bucket of water out onto him like this is some 1930s disney movie so the crowd disperses he has to go home his mime paint is running off his face He took the chances. You hear about the other people that succeed are going to the DMV and are doing five minutes for a captive audience. Started learning in this era he liked the singular performance more than improv troops because you succeed alone or if you fail, it's your fault as well. Was known for not using a mic indoors because he was so loud. I'm telling you, these loud noises, it's going to reset your audience's attention. You... I don't know where these pages came from. Within a week, there are four YouTube pages with a million subscribers. (laughs) This doesn't happen, but I hope to God you're following. It's changing the meme game. Memerman, Let's Stop Haters, Neat, N-E-A-T, and The Meme Sheep. Those ones are clean memes. These guys are hacking the game. If you're not already following that, I just gave you unlimited hours of laughter. They're figuring out how to do ear rape in a funny way that used to be the worst thing you would come across aside from getting rickrolled in 2010's internet robin williams would yodel i knew this girl in denver that would scream rape (laughs) in the middle of a set just to get people's attention again and i'll tell you it worked even people outside were running back in who did he meet during this time san francisco robin met dana carvey Dana Carvey is the master of disguise. So they were beefing up each other's impressions. One of the guys, to off trail again before we do some narrative, one of the few guys that I saw make it out of the Denver scene. And by make it out, I mean he did Wise Guys a couple times. <laughs> he would get private gigs in Aspen. He had the energy, baby. He would run straight up, hurdle onto the stage. No backstage bullshit. He would jump over the first row of audience members. Started his set with a Kermit impression. I'm not trying to say impressions are a hack, but you could get an audience giggling from the start with a good frog voice. Paul was his uh, mentor in the San Francisco scene. He uh, credits this guy with giving him his first 15 minutes of real material. He's trying to break into the club scene because Jay Leno and Andy Kaufman were also in his circuit. And so they're passing him up and he's like, I know my elders are telling me to trust the process, whatever the hell that means. (laughs) I'm a little bit impatient as Robin was pushing his way through the machine, auditioned at the comedy store for Mitzi Shore in the era of Richard Pryor. He wore overalls and went up barefoot. He did a bit about being a southerner. Robin Williams has the best banjo impersonation ever. (laughs) He has that hillbilly voice as well. And Mitzi Shore, the notorious groomer of talent, she took him down to the improv and was like, whatever you just did, you got to do it again. I don't know if you paid people in the audience to sweeten the set for you, laugh a little bit. I don't know if that was a fluke. But if you do that again, paid regular on the spot, Robin Williams busts out the banjo again. And he's in the fraternity of performers. He's there with Freddie Prince when he committed suicide. 77. Book briefly touched upon how he was known cokehead and a quaalude addict. But him and Robin would talk about depression. And so Robin was an innocent kid at this point. He's 25. He's like, I thought... This disposition with life was the human condition. Everybody has to deal with it. Everybody, the broken toys, lost boys of the comedy store. Are like, nah, dude, you're fucked in the head like us. Robbins quoted saying the Freddie Prince death should have been a wake-up call to the Hollywood comics to get clean. Robin Williams, a million times he relapses throughout his career. That's not starting yet, but these fucking Richard Pryor was shoving coke up his nose. You gotta blame some of these guys for... Hey, they unlocked another level of comedy within him. Let's call it "traumedy" at that point. Yeah, it's trauma comedy psychology joke. It's the end of chapter 2. He's seeing David Letterman, Billy Crystal and Kaufman on the in LA and is like, "I told you guys, what are we waiting for? You got to go pursue it singular focus." Chapter 3, the Robin Williams show. We're still in 1977. Mr. Williams is discovering that your future is in your own hands. He gets a hold of the Tonight Show Booker. And after the Booker saw him perform Johnny Carson, was like, I like this guy. He doesn't curse for no reason. Except for in the 2009 special from Williams. His pause word was fuck. This got him a massive amount of exposure, though. You know that Tonight Show was the golden ticket in the 80s age of stand-up. So he got booked on an independent R-rated film. One of his first acting credits. (laughs) Quite ajar to what he is known for, the family man. He gets casted for a few more sketch-type roles. And he impressed Joan Rivers at one of these. She was a casting agent. He's shedding his personas. She thinks he's the real deal. Pryor starts putting him on his sketch show. Richard Pryor said at this point, Robin went full Hollywood. He had a script in his hand 24-7. He was enamored by the acting side. I mean, at the age of 25, he was probably already burnt out from the way he manically pursued five sets a night in the San Fran area. Got to do an episode of Happy Days, which has him selling tickets around the country. Doesn't need the home club as much anymore. And finally, he gets flown out to Boulder to do a shoot for Mork and Mindy. This becomes his uh, comet, what he rides into the stratosphere. Learns through touring and some Mork and Mindy traveling that he misses moving around like he did as a kid. And this is when he met his wife, Valerie. He's not into the Hollywood models. Not a slight at Valerie. In 1978, they got married. Robin is an intelligent guy. He wanted to... Plant his feet on the ground before getting shot into space. He has some sort of normality, someone who knew him. Before the fame and the notoriety. I tolerate two potentials for my future. A socially debilitating level of global recognition. Or dying alone in a lighthouse. <laughs> Director from work Mindy said that everyone was uh, casted around Robin's improv. And it was basically the Robin Williams show. Mork and Mindy has something like the most airtime given to a leading role. He's in something like two-thirds of the scenes in that show. Unheard of. He could carry a gosh darn sitcom. Wrote a little bit here about how that director was always trying to get him to quit stand-up. He's like, you could pursue any character you want to with all these three cameras and broadcast yourself to the world. Later in the career, Robin really regrets not being on stage as much. He gets a cheap house with Valerie in L.A. and keeps an apartment close to the studios. I think he's got more than a taste of fame. That's the picture that Itzkoff is portraying. He got invited a few times here to fly out to New York for Saturday Night Live. He's kind of above it at that point, right? <laughs> They say he ad-libbed 45 minutes at a New York club, though. That trip is supposed to be legend. Top of his game here, 1979. People like Bruce Springsteen are dropping into his shows. There's buzz in all these big circles that he's going to be the next big thing. And Valerie, his wife at this point, starts letting him know, things are looking pretty great. You're on your way up, but just remember, this culture is found upon building people up so that we can tear them back down. It's a culture of cancel. (laughs) Let's beat haters. Chapter four here, Mork blows his cork. The air of this one's supposed to be how that show put him into the national recognizability. It was the Manhattan Improv that he did that 40-minute set at. Big article comes out of San Francisco about how he's been lifting material from local acts. Robin admitted in the book he was thrown against the wall and shaken down by some of those urban rooms for stealing. He's going, I'm an improv person mostly. Let's be honest and look at my act together. Unfortunately, what happens is just regurgitating what's fresh on your mind. And if you're hanging out in comedy clubs, obviously you're going to be picking up on other people's. Richard Lewis, you see him on um Larry David's show, Curb Your Enthusiasm. They do the Jewish humor together. Richard Lewis been on the stage for a couple decades. He calls this the sweet steal. Well, he did a sweet steal? Yeah, he hit him with a sweet steel. Sometimes, if you're talking into a microphone, try to fill hours at a time, I think it was Salvador Dali that said in The Meaning of Life, is there any real art anymore or is everything regurgitated? <laughs> Ron Williams was just the best at it. They say in that Kinnison era of the comedy store, everybody was lifting premises off each other. They say whoever could do it best at a certain point is who deserves it. You see people get butthurt over this before we're even making money. (laughs) People really do get anal about intellectual property. Mork and Mindy, Mork and Mindy, a whole lot of this. Christopher Reeves got cast as Superman, so he has a lot more pull in L.A., and he gets Robin casted on Popeye. He's like, I know the perfect guy for y'all. I went to Juilliard with him. You might not have heard of him yet. And everybody's heard of Robin Williams at that point. It's the big producers who got to schmooze him off, try to play it cool. Who's Robin Williams? Everybody in the country who's been to a comedy club knows who he is. Robin Williams spent six months in Malta shooting Popeye. I remember watching that one. He boxes an octopus underwater, uses his head as a speed bag clashed with the director, a bunch. The movie actually ran out of budget, and Robin pitched that final scene where Popeye's dancing on top of the water. He's doing the EP's work for him. <laughs> it premiered December of 1980. Down the middle, reception from critics. They made $50 million, and it only cost $20 million. Robin should have got an extra 5 mil kickback for saving on the final number. John Lennon was shot the day before (laughs) it went into theaters, so he's going, this probably affected the sales a little bit. Season 3 of Mork & Mindy dropped 1981. They had some of the biggest episodes in that season. People are hyping him up to be the likes of Marilyn Monroe, the next Janis Joplin of Hollywood. He's the triple threat Mr. Sing, Dance, and Act. It's been four years since he moved to San Francisco, and he's like, every step of the way, I'm reminded how lucky I am. One of his jokes are, I was a god at 28 and washed up by 29. Hollywood highs and lows, ho <laughs> He spends a little time in London performing. 1980. You look up the real history, Robin Williams was in the Polaroids, underneath Hugh Hefner's cover, frequenter of the Playboy Mansion. Fourth season of uh, Mick and Morndy drops. <laughs> Johnny Carson lets him bypass the tryout method and was going, it's time for you to do your come back and do your online set and he let him talk about cocaine on air this was you're not even allowed to say the names of drugs on FM radio so this was a big deal Johnny Carson was like I'm telling you he doesn't curse for no reason he does these jokes to get the point across I don't know why Carson just turned into Seinfeld Robin came up with a new comedic cadence it's so important all of the 80's comedians are the exact same Why do you get on a subway, but in a train? (laughs) They're pointing out absurdities in a cracking voice. 80s comedy. Robin was actually being himself. With all that Mork and Mindy money, he buys a $750,000 ranch with Valerie in North San Fran. They're doing Quaaludes together. (laughs) They're influencing each other's drugs. And this is when Valerie picked up Robin... He was, like, lying dead in the bushes outside of Belushi's house. They were doing speedballs up in the hills. They talked about this sketchy drug dealer. And Robin Williams, his final memories of Belushi, he says he could barely stand and he was drooling and playing a guitar. (laughs) It's a funny way to die. (laughs) Mixing cocaine and heroin in a spoon and playing air guitar. It's sad shit. These people needed, like, chaperones left to their own devices. Comedians kill themselves, I guess, in record numbers. Everybody blames Robin Williams. They're doing the same drugs at their own behest, and he doesn't even remember Belushi sitting down to slump. He left while he was playing intolerable guitar licks. (laughs) I'm out, Belushi. Stay up straight. He had to testify to a jury about the death and was going, you're going to hold me accountable for this? Mork and Mindy, season four, they're on their 91st episode and they got c- c- canceled Almost turned into a kid's show. Robin's like, no, end it. Not completely his decision. Valerie's on the record at this point saying, Robin is a stimulus junkie and his tolerance for novelty is sky high. Which takes us into the second part, picking up pace. Chapter 5, Mr. Happy. If you're familiar with his material, Mr. Happy is his penis. Robin starts working on independent projects here. The world according to Garp. He's playing with kids on set. He's working on his old improv skills. 1982 is when The Last Mork and Mindy airs. So he's got to start making some career moves again. He gets in touch with one of his comedy managers, and the guy helps him outline an entire hour set. Or for him, I guess it's a one-man show. They wrote out the topics. Animals, drinking, cocaine ethics, hats. Entire 20 minutes on hats, Robin Williams could do. Music, politics, and always end a set on sex. You really don't think these guys are that methodical They make it look so easy. They're filming Garp. He's in his happy place with Valerie. His movie makes $26 million. And for a while, he's totally sober from cocaine and booze. He's going, my mind is stronger than rehab. I don't need it. 1983, Valerie gives birth. And Robin's on a tear out around the country. His wife's like, you're going to miss it. She's only zero years old once. This is the peak of his career. Terribly timed. They move with the baby to New York City for a little bit while Robin's filming Moscow on the Hudson. He buddies up with Billy Crystal then, and they have a very similar life. All of Robin's movies are getting weird reviews. This is Terminator, alien action movie era. Nobody's ready for these indie projects. (laughs) If he released these in 2010, Robin Williams would be showered with woke awards. I did um, Awakenings for the program, Dr. Shock. Robin Williams, all of his products have a positive message. Go back and watch that. We did it on the show. I uh, used for the intro him acting. It's deep stuff. And the box office guys need to see an explosion. Nobody wants to see a guy putting a funny spin on Hamlet. 80s action mode. You need Sylvester Stallone to be or what? These independent projects, they probably hindered his career. He could be as famous as uh, Robert De Niro. He just wanted to put out the messages he wanted to. Puts out his second comedy album, Throbbing Python of Love. Goes back to England for a little bit. Messes around with Martin Short, who's doing that Andy Kaufman-style comedy. Keeping it well-versed. 1985, we skipped forward. Like I said, he's on that tear, 83 to 86. (laughs) Flops a movie called Club Paradise. Keeps on keeping on. He's also known in this era for doing the most comic relief benefits. (laughs) It's a goddamn shame. It's a messed up joke on the universe to play on us for taking him, the guy who gave the most back. He said he slept four hours a night and there was rarely a time where he was not on either cocaine or booze during these stretch of years. He starts seeing a therapist for the first time at 86, and he's told, aside from crazy Richard Pryor for the first time, yeah, you have hardcore depression, dude. <laughs> I say a lot of comedians have anhedonia. It's a naturally low-resting heart rate because nothing can elicit emotion in you. you get got a lower baseline, so you could... Keep it cool like an assassin out there with four tiers of audiences, the types of place Robin put on. Chapter six here, height of his career. Good morning! The Passion Project movies obviously aren't lucrative or career-advancing. It's just what he wanted to do. Good Morning Vietnam is one of these movies. We wouldn't have it if we listened to Hollywood producers. Robin didn't have his slush fund to put together some indie Robin actually found a writer in Saigon for the movie. <laughs> Flew himself out there and started riffing on a Saigon radio station. And he was trying some old barrack humor and it was working. And he took that to Hollywood and they gave him a bit of a budget finally. Great way to leverage the deal. <laughs> He's like um doing the new independent method of creating your own radio show and then selling it as a pilot. He did the first podcast out of Saigon. They start filming over there. He did a lot of local living, went and picked rice with some farmers. He says it was one of his best experiences filming over there. When he came back to America, he went on The Tonight Show to promote the film and realized this is an extremely high-risk topic. Pete, you can't even mention Vietnam. It was a really fresh wound in the 80s. You got a lot of 20-year-old Veterans who have shell shock and are being not taken care of. So he starts just doing those USO tours to give back. That movie must be good medicine for a lot of those people, though. By the end, Good Morning Vietnam grossed over $100 million, the fourth highest of the year. All of Hollywood wouldn't give him the deal. Makes a lot of the future funding for his independent projects easier. Chapter 7. Typecast to the top. You want to succeed in Hollywood today? Be a black, gay, transgender, alien, xenomorph, hamster. Typecast. Robin Williams for a long time was America's father. He had his second child, Zach, six years old at the time. He wasn't invited to his ex's wedding. Why would you anyway him and Michael Keaton... Get cast in the Dead Poet Society together. Later in his life, Robin Williams has a heart issue that he gets operated on, and when he says he comes back after, his love life with this second wife wasn't the same. He said he joined the Dead Penis Society. <laughs> the movie grossed 90 million. Fred Rogers commented on Dead Poet Society. He's like, Robin Williams' art is lightening up the world. We don't need to. Why are you guys trying to cancel his independent projects? Because it's not part of the machine. Robin Williams inserted a joke in his act about Mr. Rogers being president after that. Imagine Mr. Robbins innocently waving through his sweatered hand. Shit, these people don't know the Russians already launched their nukes. Armageddon is on its way. You see this everywhere now. (laughs) Mr. Rogers, even though he would make a great figurehead of a president he is a saint on earth he can recognize true good before it's dead in denver they have murals of robin williams with clown noses all over the place like no one acknowledged what good he was doing for the world while he was alive (laughs) only fred rogers will give it up when it's due his new wife martha gave birth to a new baby zelda Had a big old bit on the ABC morning show. October of 1898. That doesn't sound right. 1988. (laughs) They start shooting Awakenings. Just told you about that. Robin Williams had to spend time in an insane asylum. It was fun to read about. He said he got to study Tourette's and real schizophrenia. He was able to feel himself method acting better in that time. By winter of 1990, him and De Niro were good friends on set. Are you looking at me? You think all these patients deserve El Dopa? Robin Williams getting all these typecasted roles. He typecasted himself into it with those weird indie movies. Steven Spielberg was dying to make this movie for a long time. He said he had the script put together. He was waiting for the perfect actor. Like I said, Robin Williams, the man-child, he... Is the real pan. He was able to remember how to fly. He held on to his. He remembers the feeling of the fairy. What do you think that one represents? You gotta rewatch these movies. It's a beautiful allegory for becoming a man. Steven Spielberg has. Who is that? Philip Williams? The composer for that movie is Williams as well, and it has some of the most. Beautiful scores. I'm becoming a weirdo. Half of my iTunes playlist is now Hollywood. As a comedian, everyone wants to be known. I have a dark side. You know I can dramatic act. Robin Williams is acting now for the biggest directors in the history of the business. This movie was absolutely massive, and it got him into the Disney universe. So they casted him after that for Aladdin during the filming of Hook. They were like, start working on your genie voice, whatever that means to you. (laughs) I don't think Robin Williams has a real voice in his first 10 years of anything you could see of his. He doesn't maintain one decibel for more than two minutes. I think the genie is his actual voice. He gets cast for Flubber and Mrs. Doubtfire as well. They basically gave him a contract. They typecasted him into Disney. Summer 1991 wrapped up Aladdin, got bad reviews. (laughs) I mean, you can't trust critics. That's what I'm trying to get at with this. They gave his biggest projects the dumbest numbers. Hook made 120 million. Aladdin made 217 million. Robin got 50 million. (laughs) I mean, he carried that entire movie, they had the music in it as well no no and then (laughs) you have to see the new aladdin they have hip-hop will smith genie why don't you just take a shit on robin williams grave oh my what a disgrace the rock they said they were going to cgi robin williams into jumanji 2 and the rock was like you lose i won't run for president for the dark cabal if you put cgi robin into this movie (laughs) <laughs> you gotta st- give it up for The Rock for not... What is this? We need to, like, make a new amendment in the Constitution that Hollywood cannot parade around the corpses of our loved stars. I don't want to see Robin reanimated on stage this summer. Jesus. <laughs> I am telling you they're gonna make, like, Mrs. Doubtfire X-rated... <laughs> 1993 is when that movie came out. They're teaching cross-dressing to our children. <laughs> My sisters loved that one. I watched it too many times. I think Hook is better. I think Eddie Murphy was getting uh, awards for the Nutty Professor at this time, and they wrote about how Robin was really jealous. <laughs> it was like, Eddie Murphy gets to play ten roles in that. That would have been perfect role for... Uh, Robin Williams, who in nineteen ninety five put together Jumanji. It only cost fifteen million. It was considered a failure at the time, and they made over a hundred million. He's the biggest star that he will ever be. Which takes us into the third act of the book. Called it Supernova. This guy is no longer a white dwarf. <laughs> He's a blue giant, the biggest star in the universe. Chapter eight is called The Golden Dude quicker ones up here he got cast in a woody allen movie that's not too good nowadays uh it's called deconstructing allen they finished that in 1997 starts getting involved in liberal politics (laughs) he says it reminds him of san francisco this is like when jim carrey went off the deep end right you see he's on his beating his political drum carrey went kooky a little bit later Later chapter, Robin William admitted that he was obsessed with Ace Ventura, and he said him and younger Jim Carrey would have gotten together. He starts filming Good Will Hunting at this time, had never been to Boston before, was happy to see what a more serious set looks like, and you know this is the movie that he wins an Oscar for. Oh my god. 80s comedian shows he has range. He can get praise from the Academy. (laughs) You don't need these assholes to tell you that you're an American treasure. Lucky Nicolas Cage didn't try to steal your candy ass, Robin. He fucking did the arc at this point. Have you ever watched um, BoJack Horseman? A couple times I was thinking this show might have been about him. It's about an 80s comedian with depression that gets a sitcom and then it's canceled. He tries to do indep- it. It literally the entire hour that we just went over Robin Williams' life. And then there's this other character in it, the dog comedian, who's like the really good mask. He keeps it upbeat. And that's like the Jim Carrey one. And he exits the limelight at his own will. And Robin Williams is trying to keep his head above water at the end keep up with the young guys. He winds up taking his own life like a BoJack Horseman. (laughs) The guy ODs in the show, and he does one final show in the sky, which is the name of the last chapter. Billy Crystal quoted at this time saying, Robin never took a project for the money, and now he can play any gig he wants for as much money as he wants. It's funny how things work out. Was able to show his entire spectrum of acting ability, that Juilliard skill, through Goodwill Hunting. Same year, Bicentennial Man dropped. It's that movie about a 200-year-old cyborg trying to be fully human. And so, like, Hook came out when he was having his other kid, and he was really deep into parenting, and he agreed with Spielberg to make that movie. Bicentennial man, he was saying at this point of his career, it feels like his act is a little bit of an animatronic setting. Ooh, funny mode, go into four second intervals of impressions. He doesn't. <laughs> he's tripping himself out over this and he's getting meta making movies about it. Made 58 million. It's only feeding into the downward spiral more. In 2000, he had that heart attack. I told you he came back and. Made a joke about being in the Dead Penis Society. But all of the late-night hosts reached out to him and was like, come on the show before you get the big heart attack. December of 2001, Robin starts playing some small clubs again back in San Francisco, thinking that's what might fix his broken heart. And in 2001, he did a 90-minute one-man show. Starts going and doing more military gigs in 2004. Released an independent movie, and that'll take us to Chapter 9, Weapons of Self-Destruction. In 2004, Robin wins his second Golden Globe at the age of 53. Thought he dealt with all of his substance abuses at this point, especially after Mork and Mindy ended. He had that kid, Zach. He really... Richard Pryor died in 2005 of a heart attack, and this sent him into another tornado he said being in the club scene didn't help him he's doing stand-up again he's back in the comedy trenches of course you're gonna have to slug some jameson and yo he has the best quote ever robin williams goes a lot of people like to refer to alcohol as a crutch if that's the case then jack daniels is the wheelchair (laughs) you see people rip off his jokes and memes now too sad that's what happens to old comedians. <laughs> you become a meme. 2009. You seen that uh, Family Guy episode? They did an entire tribute where everybody Peter touches turns into Robin Williams. Made it back to some thousand seat venues in stand-up having taken 20 years off. And then you see people like Steve Martin who um, hasn't done stand-up in 40 years and then puts out a master class. <laughs> Funny how his comedy duo partner, Martin Short, was the one who was actually doing the legwork in London with Robin. 2008, Robin Williams announced his uh, tour, Weapons of Self-Destruction. And I'm saying if you're going to watch one of Robin's specials, go back to 83, 86. Because that 2009 one, you could see something is not right. And he kept it on the DL of what he was suffering from. 2009, Robin had open heart surgery again. His family and friends showed up, bought back to life, and Billy, the kid was there. Was his name Billy Idol? Uh Oh, Billy Crystal here. Why does it sound like I have my balls in a vice? (laughs) Welcome back, Robin. Ed Sullivan. Reached out to Robin Williams and said, anytime you want to come on, you have the golden ticket onto my night show now. At this point, Robin says, <laughs> I should be dead a couple of times over. Comedy is going to be more of an expression than an occupation for me. He's like, I made it back up to theaters. I'm not going to go pedal to the metal again now as a 50 year old. And he has 20 year old kids Wants to spend time with them. They love his trust fund. He's got some pretty good alcoholic material in that third one, though. (laughs) He gets deep, like he gets um, introspective in that old man. Special as you know, you progress throughout your career, too. 2010, Robin has his Broadway debut. He always wanted to be on the playbill. Gets on Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. Now he's really done it all. We read the Kiss book, Paul Stanley, guy's a rock star. He's like, but the true test of entertainment, being a thespian, is going to act on Broadway and enunciate. Robin has that Juilliard in him. <laughs> you can't call it a day until he gets on Broadway. It's really weird. At this time, his wife was saying, yeah, we kind of see he had some short-term memory However, all of his actor peers were saying he has a photographic memory. There is no doubt. I don't care if he does have gray hair. He is able to word for word remember pages at a time. Really wild that some circuits of his brain were still working. He lived for 60 years and was an entertainer for 35. This doesn't happen to anybody that lives... It's a really moving story. Let's go to chapter 10 Gone. He's tasted the highest levels of human success, received the best accolades, Oscars, Golden Globes, hangs out with Jack Nicholson. He's one of the cruxes of comedy. He did a short with Louis C.K. in 2012, weird indie, morbid stuff called The Angriest Man in Brooklyn. Imagine the type of stuff they would have been putting out. If Robin Williams had the Louis deal, they give you a shitload of red cameras and a big-ass budget. Same thing as Curb Your Enthusiasm. We'd, we would get to see Robin doing Borat type of public pranks. He did a CBS show called The Crazy Ones for 165000 an episode. Got canceled after one or two seasons. And in 2013, he starts having some real stomach issues behind the scenes. They said he was urinating blood and urinating in his sleep. He would freeze where he stood. Billy Crystal on the record saying he had dinner with Robin and his wife. He was overly quiet, but super affectionate when departing. Like he knew he was going to take some weird action. There's a really creepy interview as well with him in 2013. Robin's wearing, I think it's the last interview of him on tape, he's in an all-white tuxedo. (laughs) They're like, what's the occasion for, I don't think I've ever seen an all-white tuxedo. Robin's like, you'll get the message. (laughs) You see, at the end of Robin's career, he developed a really good evil laugh. (laughs) He's hiding something. And there were some really curt entries he had at the end. He didn't have a suicide note, but... Robin was like, it's painful to me <laughs> to know the level that I was operating at stage and what people expect, knowing that I can't deliver on it. He built up too high of an expectation for himself, or maybe we all held him to too high of a standard. Like I'm saying, every 80s comic is the same, and yes, stand-up comedy is the art form of set-up punchline. Robin Williams is a genius, I'll say it. He... Reinvented the game. His setups were punchlines, and his punchlines were setups for the next joke. Nobody learned to keep it moving in that way, and there really isn't anybody else that is able to do it in this fashion. So it's really a shame that he knew his place and how special he was. That's probably what the downfall was here. His wife. Um, Asked him at the point, why don't you do stand-up anymore? And Robin was never a crier around his family. They said the only time he cried, he was smiling. And he often cried tears of joy around his family. He broke down to his wife. He's like, I don't know how to be funny anymore. It's the saddest thing you could hear. (laughs) Imagine hearing Robin Williams say that. I don't know, man. Like at uh, the open mic scene at a certain point, there's people rehearsing their same shitty joke. Ju- you know the five-minute set, buddy. We've heard you do it a hundred times. Let's just hear you be yourself. Are you able to riff and share some of your actual thoughts? Because that's what people want to hear at this point. Like, Robin is a weathered old man with a American dream experience that nobody ever gets to live. I People would... Love to have just heard him talk out his ass for four hours like Dave Chappelle does. But Robin is a true entertainer. He's like, I can't waste a second of anybody's time on stage. I'm not quick enough anymore. I guess I got to go to the hangman's noose. He started taking antipsychotics in spring of 2014. And you know these pharmaceuticals are non-reversible. Like You got to try everything in the book before you get on these things. May 28th of 2014, Robin was publicly diagnosed with Parkinson's degenerative disease. He was having central nervous system attacks. It's a fucking sick joke, man, how he did that research movie on Parkinson's. The exact. They should have given him L DOPA. He always said he had a lifelong fear of losing his faculties. For a guy like him, it is a <laughs> embodied nightmare that he was about to go through. So what do you do? Do you tell your kid? Uh, people don't get sad and kill themselves for rational reasons. Do you maintain the Peter Pan ignorance in a child forever? Keep them in Neverland? Or do you turn them into the Captain Fantastic? If you've ever seen that movie, these kids are adults from the start. Who the hell knows? Robin had one hell of an individual lifestyle that we got to look behind today It was August of 2014 that he finally hanged himself His wife was the one who came across his body And she was like, (laughs) you fought extremely hard I knew this was not a decision made on a whim I knew you wanted to see your kids go from 20 to death or whatever His wife didn't hold him accountable He must have been in immense pain. They found some incisions on his wrist from a pocket knife, and there was a towel between uh, the belt and his neck, which is usually a sign of he didn't want to experience pain. Which is weird that he also had the pocket knife wound. It was wild. I don't know if you guys remember. I was uh, 2014, freshman year of college, and I knew this kid named Robbie William. And I knock on his door, I was like, guess who just died? Robin Williams. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know what to do. I lost a fucking hero that day, so I went and made fun of a kid with the same name. I'm going to see that kid at a wedding later in the year. It's sad, man. Bill Murray said he almost fainted when he heard Jimmy Fallon had an entire uh, dedication for him the night of. Remember Disney was posting those photos of Genie leaving the bottle, and it was like, you're free now, finally. Dude, that's some tear-jerking material. <laughs> there was a massive turnout at the eulogy. Some people were angry. Some people were relieved for him. Mostly sad. Val wouldn't speak. Marsh wouldn't speak. <laughs> Couple ride-or-die ex-wives he got there Robin. Um, He had his Hollywood star walk of fame put up in record time. At least Billy Crystal gave him a couple of big speeches at the Emmys and at his funeral. You know, it's not going to be his wife that understands the wild ride that he took while he was here. It's going to be Billy Crystal, some of these other guys. This is a paradox of a man that was expressive and cripplingly introverted. It would have been a shame if Robin Williams turned out to be a welder. <laughs> In 2015, all the trusts got dispersed to his kids and family. In 2016, San Francisco renamed one of their tunnels under the Golden Gate Bridge after him. He left millions to the charities of his choice. I mean, could we ask for a better golden dude dad for all the kid movies? 80s comedian with a dark side and an edge that put out... Positive, independent projects. Robin Williams, I'm going to raise a glass to you. Thank you, everybody. That is David Itzkoff's bestseller. Happy we got to do that one together. It's going to take us further into May. We have a fucking bangerang month ahead. Summer specials. Michael Lewis is making his return next week with Moneyball. Moneyball a book about how a few amateur theorists changed the game of baseball forever. A year ago, we did The Anatomy of Baseball, got in touch with our nostalgic side, the Little League, cup-checking one another. There's going to be plenty of that, as well as the Hollywood movie of Jonah Hill and Brad Pitt. <laughs> Billy Bean, the baseball trader, who was supposed to be a wash-up and looked into statistics, questioned the game as you were not allowed to risk his job. It's a really fun book. I think you guys are going to enjoy that show. A lot of fun ahead for the month of May. Make sure you're checking out Patreon. Follow Harry Shit on Instagram. Thank you all again for another edition of Mixed Nonfiction. I will see you guys next week. I love you all. My name is Nick Munez. See you then. Peace.